Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. Sometimes it can be incredibly difficult to be a Christian, right? Can we agree on that, right? There, there's, uh, the, Christianity is not always the easiest thing to do. Sometimes we don't talk about that, but, um, you know, we have sin we're trying to fight in our life, the flesh that we're trying to battle against every, every week, every day. Uh, we have rejection to deal with, with sometimes with, uh, when you share your faith with other people, uh, with family members, there can be backlash at work and with friends. Uh, not only that, but we know from the scriptures that God will allow trials into our life so that we, we depend more upon him and he sanctifies us through that process to draw us closer to him, make us more like him. And, uh, you know, it, it, it can be difficult. And a lot of times we, we talk about those things, we can emphasize those things, how difficult it is to walk out this thing called the Christian life. And while that's absolutely true, that's absolutely true, I think the truth is sometimes we can forget how great it is to follow Jesus, right? I, I mean, it's a pretty awesome thing that we have a relationship with the living God and we get to follow him. See, sometimes as Christians, we forget that following Jesus is not something we have to do. It's something that we get to do, right? It's not a, it's not a have to. It's something we get to do. And we're going to be looking at a passage today in Luke chapter 5, uh, which is probably familiar to a lot of you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, five and this is the passage where Jesus calls Peter to follow him, right? We, we know they, uh, they go out in a boat, and they, they put down their nets, and they haul in this huge catch of fish, and Peter drops everything and follows Jesus. And, and he says, you're going to be a fisher of men, right? That sums it up. And this week, as I was preparing for this, I, I was looking at different sermons about it. I was looking at different uh, authors who wrote about this particular passage. And what I found was a lot of times they turned it into a depressing passage, right? With kind of this mindset of, oh man, Peter had to leave his boat. Peter, Peter had to leave all those fish behind, Right? Peter had to leave everything and follow Jesus, and the focus was on what Peter had to sacrifice and what Peter had to leave behind versus what Peter actually got, namely Jesus. He had the opportunity to follow Jesus. And see, when I look at this passage that we're going to be in today, I don't think that Peter's attitude is, oh, I had to leave my boat. I had to leave my fish. It was quite the opposite. Peter is sitting there thinking, I get to follow this man, this man who's the Messiah, the Savior, God. I get to follow Jesus. Are you serious? Do you know who I am? Do you know who he is? Do you know I get to follow him? And so often in our Christian life, we can look at the negative and all the while, sitting here saying, oh, I have to do this, I have to read my Bible, I have to go to church, I have to get this sin out of my life, rather than I get to follow the living God. I get to follow Jesus. So let's not forget how amazing that really is. So for you today, is your Christianity more about have-tos than get-tos? Ask yourself, is it more about have-tos than get-tos? Is it more about, oh, I have to get rid of this sin, I have to carve out time to read the Word, I have to worship God, or do you come here this morning thinking, what an amazing opportunity this is. How remarkable is it that I get to gather with God's people and worship God? He is so, so good. I'm excited to worship him today. Are you amazed that you have a relationship with God? Truly. Like, think about that. The creator of the universe. I mean, thinking about the Psalms, right? Oh, you know, what, is, what am I that you would think of me? What is man that you would even think of me, God? Are you amazed 
that you have a relationship with him. Because when I look at the pages of Scripture, what I see are men and women who are enthralled by God, who are enthralled by him, who are enraptured by his grace, exuberant of his holiness and perfection, ecstatic about his love, elated about his justice, euphoric over his forgiveness, so much so that it transcends all earthly circumstances. That's what I see. Look at Psalm 63. I'll read this to you. This is King David. Because you, your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Not a whole lot of have-tos there, huh? How about the Apostle Paul writing from prison in Philippians where he, he, he was imprisoned because he relentlessly pursued preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And there was a group of people who said, no, 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 no. We're not including the Gentiles, and they were quite upset about it. They were ethnocentric. They thought this should only be for the Jewish people. And Paul knew. He said, nope. I'm called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and it landed him in prison. And so he's writing from prison, and he says this, Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. None of these have an undercurrent of have to, does it? These men are compelled not by duty, but by delight. By delight. They're expressing longing, deep, passionate zeal, and a desire to be with God, to know God, to walk with God in the midst of any circumstance. Jesus, just knowing you, Jesus, is the greatest reality ever. Is that you? Are you there this morning? Is that where your heart is? Do you experience a passion for God in this way? Is this typical, this attitude typical of your relationship with the Lord? Um, my, uh, my middle child, John, he's a little bit older now, but when he was younger, he had a favorite pair of pajamas, his Iron Man jammies, right? He loved those things. Every, every night, Daddy, can I wear my Iron Man jammies? Can I wear my Iron Man jammies? Right? Are they clean? And literally, I'm not even kidding, this was when he was about two years old. If they were, if they were clean, he got to wear them, he'd go run up and give his mom a hug and say, thank you for washing my Iron Man jammies, right? He was that thrilled about these pajamas. And it just so happened, this was around the time that, maybe you guys remember this, the movie The Avengers was coming out. And, and I actually turned on, I was on my computer, and I was, I was watching the trailer to the movie. And he comes over, and he looks over my shoulder, right? He's wearing his Iron Man jammies. He looks at this trailer, and he just, his, like, his mouth was wide open. His eyes were big, like, looking at me like, is this for real? What on earth? This is amazing, right? His mind was blown by this trailer. And, and literally for the next like, couple months, he would say to me, Daddy, can we watch the Iron Man video? Can we watch the Iron Man video? Right? And he, he wanted to just watch that trailer over and over and over again, not realizing that there was two hours and 22 minutes of Iron Man goodness, right? He, he, he just saw, he saw this little snapshot, this little taste, this sample of the movie, not realizing there was a whole movie. He only thought, this, this is it right here, this two minutes, right? This snapshot, this little taste, not realizing 
what was actually out there, what it was giving him a snapshot of. And so many in the church, man, we're satisfied with a snapshot of Jesus, aren't we? A little trailer, a sermon here, there, a community group, small group here. Maybe I read my Bible once a week, and all the while not realizing what you're missing. Infinite joy. We, we settle. So often we settle. I mean, have you made peace with the fact that you're not experiencing the peace of Christ in your life? Are you not realizing the joy that there is in following Jesus with everything. Psalm 16, she just mentioned it. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's not kidding. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. I have come that their joy may be complete. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it, he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's amazing. I see people, it, it, it seems like that the longer they're a Christian, it's almost more like the more their faith becomes a downer, right? Ah, oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. Because somewhere along the way, it seemed like they stopped realizing they get to follow Jesus. And instead, their relationship with Jesus becomes rote, mechanical, mindless, dry, ritualistic list of have-tos rather than something where you are more and more amazed every single day as you walk with Jesus. And I read this passage in Luke 5, and I see Peter blown away. I see Peter having an attitude, oh man, who is this man? Who is this God that I would get to follow him? It's not a have to, it's a get to. And so I hope today that we can learn from this passage and apply some of that to our own lives and walk out of here saying, man, I get to follow Jesus. So let's go to Luke 5, verse 1. It says this, On one occasion, while a crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, which is Peter, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Okay, so Jesus is standing by the Lake of Gennesaret, or also known as the Sea of Galilee. They're the same, same body of water. Um, and, and all these people are crowding around him, right? He's on the edge of the water. All these people are crowding around him. This was the beginning of Jesus, around the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Jesus' earthly ministry really uh, involved two primary elements, teaching and miracles. Teaching and miracles. And we see that Jesus was teaching with an authority that, that the people really had never seen before. He's teaching with this authority, doing miracles, demonstrating his authority over spiritual darkness and demons and over illnesses and disease. And understandably so, when you start doing miracles, you tend to draw a crowd, right? You tend to, people are, I want to go see what's going on there, right? So the crowds are, are beginning to grow. And Jesus, he's getting pressed in, people packing in right on the edge of the water. And I mean, just picture the scene. Smell the water, the breeze coming through, the sound of the water lapping up on the shoreline, a massive crowd of people squeezing in on Jesus, and he says, oh, I got I to get some space here. So he grabs the boat, Peter's boat. Remember, if you know back in, in Luke 4, Peter and, uh, and Jesus kind of had begun this relationship, and Jesus had endeared himself to Peter. He had just previously in the chapter before healed Peter's mother-in-law. And you say, is that really a good thing? 
<laughs> I love my mother-in-law. She's amazing. Oh, yes, it was a good thing for Peter. He healed his mother-in-law. Truly, I love my mother-in-law. She's, I love her to death. So he pushes out, and he continues to teach. He continues to teach. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now, Simon, Peter, was a fisherman by trade. This was his livelihood. He would have done it his entire life, right? And in fact, here we find out that, that Peter and his men had just been out all night toiling. And, and really in the, the Greek, it, I mean, it, it's this wearisome toiling, right? They were exhausted. They had been out all night and took in absolutely nothing. Now, uh, Jesus' request really had two strikes against it. Number one, uh, nobody fished during the day. They fished at night. So this was during the day, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to push out and go, go fishing because this is not the time that you would go fishing. And number two, um, they just were out there and they didn't catch anything. Why would there be any fish now? They were just out there and came up with absolutely nothing. They were hanging it up. They were cleaning their nets. And Peter says something interesting. But at your word, I will let down the nets. At your word. Uh, if you have kids, there's plenty of times when you say to your kids, hey, it's, it's time for bed. You need to clean your room. Uh, you need to get in the car. You need to uh, uh, do something this or that. And what do kids inevitably say? Why? Right? Why? If you have kids, you know this. You say, clean your room. Why? Why? And, and there's this, uh, this, you know, this desire to know the reason why you're asking them to do something. It's not enough that you told them. They want to know the reason. Right? There's none of that here with Peter. You notice that? There's none of that. Here, Simon Peter, absolutely no reason to believe that going out into the deep and letting down the nets would produce anything fruitful whatsoever. Not a bit of evidence for that. But he says, well, because Jesus, you say so at your word, I'll do it. At your word, we'll put down the nets. Because he says so. Because Jesus says so, I will do it. I mean... It's kind of like being a parent, right? Why? Because I said so. You know, it's like you grow up thinking I'll never become like my parents, and then all of a sudden you have your own kids, and you're like, because I said so, right? I mean, it's, it's like, it's just, that's what you do. But here's the thing. Peter did this because Jesus says so, and the Bible tells us that's enough of a reason to do something, because Jesus said so. Do you do things in your life? Do you live your life in a certain way because Jesus says so? Do you live a life of radical obedience to Jesus because he says so? Or do you say, well, I got re- to have a reason why. Uh, I'm not going to listen unless I get some reasons. Or, ah, I know Jesus said so, but on the other hand, I have my own understanding. I have my own uh, uh, reasons. And, you know, is it practical? Is it going to advance my own agenda and my plan for my life? Is it going to help me? Like, how, how do you interact with what we're called to in Scripture? The life we're called to as followers of Jesus? What is your attitude toward Christ? Do you live your life in such a way because Jesus says so? Now, we live in a world of options, don't we? World of options. I mean, so much so, I I think we don't even realize we have options everywhere we go. I had a friend, he said to me, he said, we live in a user-defined world. And I was like, what does that mean? And what he means by that is, man, we, we, we define ourselves in so many ways, right? I mean, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're putting up the pictures and defining who we are to the world, this image of what we want to put forward. We're defining ourselves, right? We're putting up the good stuff. 
We're putting up the best for people to see. We're deciding. I decide what I am. I decide on my tweets. I decide where I'm going to live. I decide where I'm going to work. I decide where I'm going to play. I'm going to decide what car I'm going to drive, what color it's going to be, whether it has heated seats. I'm going to decide my cell phone plan and my, my cell phone, what phone I'm going to have. Like, I'm making, we have all these options in the world. And, and here's the thing. We get to follow Jesus, but we don't get to decide what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not optional. It's not optional. We get to follow him because of his grace alone, right? Because he gave his life on the cross for you and me and paid the penalty for your sin and has forgiven us. We get to follow him, but we don't get to decide what it means to be a disciple. It's defined for us in the word of God, and we're called to obey because Jesus says so. Look at John 15, 14. It says this. This is Jesus talking. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Try that out on your friends or your wife. You're my friend if you do what I say. It doesn't really work. It works here for Jesus because, well, he's God, right? I mean, it works for Jesus because he's God, but that doesn't really translate for us. We can't do that. What, what, what's in the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, to obey Jesus. So we get the joy of following Jesus, but part of following Jesus is that nasty little word that nobody likes, obedience. We don't get to create our own discipleship program, per se, where we say, yeah, I'm going to have 15 to 20 obediences this month, and no, don't want to do the unlimited plan, not going to do that, right? No, we're called to obey and surrender to his authority, period. This is what it means to follow Christ. And for most of us, we love the teachings of Jesus and the commands of Jesus right up until the point that it demands our surrender. I'll say that again. Most of us love the teachings and the commands of Jesus right up until the point that it demands our surrender. See, I'll give you an example. Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Man. See, that's what most of us do is we we don't put Jesus in a position of authoritative Lord in our life. We put him in the position of advisor, right? Not, not authoritative. We put him in a position of advisor. And we take Jesus' advice, but we want to reserve the right to exercise our rational, logical, pragmatic wisdom to our life. Thanks, Jesus. I'll take that into consideration. See, di- disciples of Jesus don't take his commands into consideration. They take him at his word, just like Peter did. At your word, I'll let down the nets, master. Peter shows us what it looks like to be obedient to Jesus, even when it's not practical and even when it flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom would have said, there's no fish. This is a a fool's errand. But Peter says, at your word, I will do it. Oswald Chambers um, in, in, uh, was it, my utmost for his highest, If you want to look this one up, it's May 30th. (laughs) He says this, Suppose God tells you to do something that is an enormous test of your common sense, totally going against it. What will you do? Will you hold back? If you get into the habit of doing something physically, you will do it every time you are tested until you break the habit through sheer determination. And the same is true spiritually. Again and again, you will come right up to what Jesus wants, but every time you will turn back at the true point of testing until you are determined to abandon yourself to God in total surrender. Yet we tend to say, yes, but suppose I do obey God in this matter, but what about blank? 
or we say, yes, I will obey God if he asks me to do something that doesn't go against my common sense, but don't ask me to take a step in the dark. See, how is it that the Lord is asking you to obey him right now in your life? What is it he's asking you to do? See, I think almost at all times for believers, the Lord is subtly leading us, the Holy Spirit will subtly lead us to to do different things as we walk with Jesus. Many times we know what God is asking us to do. He's, He's leading us to do something, but yet we suppress it, we ignore it, we deny it, we keep moving, and we treat Jesus like an advisor instead of an authority in our life. And I, I, I tell you, I have found that it is the best practice to respond promptly to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Just, just respond. Just respond. Like, the Lord will lay someone on my heart to pray for them. And rather than, like, making myself a note and saying, I'll pray for them tonight or tomorrow morning, like, just do it there. Like, stop, pray for them, and I send them a, a text message encouraging them, right? Like, just respond promptly as you can. I mean, maybe I have an argument with my wife, and I say something I know I shouldn't have said. Like, the Lord, the Holy Spirit will prompt, prompt me to, to go and apologize. Like, just, just obey. Just go. Listen. Even when it kind of flies in the sense of your rational, emotional thoughts, like, just respond and obey to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, I think, is leading at all times in the life of a believer and for followers of Jesus, and we need to just cultivate that sense of obedience to Him. So how is the Lord asking you to obey Him? See, a lot of times in the Christian community, it isn't the, it isn't the sin of, um, it isn't the sin, it's the sin of, uh, not the sin of commission, it's the sin of omission that it is for a lot of us. Like God's leading you to do something and you, you just don't do it, right? It's not someone who's like, I mean, this happens too, like going out every weekend, getting lit, like getting into trouble. Like, yes, there's that too. But a lot of times in the church, it's like the Lord is leading you to do something and we just, we just suppress it and we ignore it. And so the thing that I want to challenge us with us today is what is the Lord asking you to do to obey him? And, and I want to give a bunch of different examples of what might be, some hypotheticals. And my hope is that through this, that the Lord will maybe stir in you uh, what he's kind of impressing upon you in these days. So here's a couple examples. Is the Lord asking you to forgive your spouse for something? I mean, Ephesians 4, right? We're called to forgive one another as we've been forgiven in Christ. Is is he asking you to forgive your spouse, either your husband or your wife? Or maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's your dad. Like you grew up in a home where your dad was never there. He, maybe he left you, or maybe he just was a workaholic, and you've had basically zero relationship with him. And there's bitterness in your heart. Is the Lord leading you to forgive? To forgive. Husbands, 1 Peter 3 tells us to live with our wives in a considerate way. Is the Lord impressing upon you that you need to be more considerate of your wife in the way you're interacting with her? Wives, Titus 2, tells you to be kind to your husbands. Is the Lord impressing upon you that you need to to be kinder to your husband in this time? Is the Lord calling you to give financially, generously, and you're just suppressing that. You're ignoring it. You're resisting it. Maybe you've got two different job offers, and, and one job pays more than the other, but you just know that God's leading you to take the job that pays less, and it doesn't make sense, right? It's like, no, it makes more sense to take this one. You just, you just know the Lord's leading you to take the one with less money. Or how about this? You have two job offers, and the Lord's leading you to take the one that's more. But you know the one that's more has more responsibility. It's going to stretch you. It's going to put you out of your comfort zone. But you know the Lord is saying, hey, I want you to take that step of faith. I want you to take that, that risk and, and take the one that's paying, that's going to offer more money. But it's, a, it's, a, it's 
pushing you out of your comfort zone. Or maybe you've got two job offers, and one is back in your hometown, and one's here in the black hole of Northern Virginia, right? And, and everyone in your life, your family, your friends are like, oh, yes, you get to come home, like come home, be near us. But you know the Lord's leading you to stay here for whatever reason. Maybe it's because you're part of this church. Maybe it's because you're part of a ministry up here that, that is significant. Maybe it's relationships in your life that you know the Lord is, is calling you to be here. And, and you're in that wrestle, you're in that tension. But you know the Lord's calling you to stay do you obey? For those of you that are, uh, are married, newly married, maybe the Lord's calling you to start a family. And you say, oh, we've only been married three months. But you know the Lord's calling you to start a family now, right? You know, I, I mean, we live in a, in a culture that says, hey, get married, you know, have no kids for three to five years so you can have you time because that's in the Bible, you know? Um, my thing with the kids and starting a family and marriages is just, it's this, right, before the Lord. It's an open hand. Like, I think we just need to be more uh, prayerful about that and just opening our hands before the Lord and saying, God, what do you want for our marriage? What do you want for our family? Rather than just assuming we're not going to start a family for three to five years. Just a thought. Maybe you're supposed to apologize to someone that you've hurt. You know you've hurt somebody and the Lord's leading you to apologize to them, and you're just, you're, you're resisting. Maybe it's a ministry that God's calling you to serve in in some way, and, and you're just pushing back. You're just like, ah, I'm stretched already, but time, and, and, but you know the Lord's leading you to kind of engage, and, and you're, you're resisting it. Maybe the Lord is leading you to a greater level of scripture memory and engagement with spiritual disciplines, fasting, and prayer, and solitude, and, and you know that the Lord's leading you to really engage those things, and, and you're just, you're just kind of suppressing and ignoring it. Maybe it's a particular person the Lord is prompting you to share Christ with, and you, you feel like, I'm supposed to share Christ with this person. You just haven't done it. You just haven't obeyed. Maybe the Lord's leading you to pray for someone in particular, and you haven't done it. Maybe the Lord's leading you to break off a certain relationship. Or maybe you're here, and you're not a believer, and you've been coming to the Way City Church for a while, and the Lord is really just impressing upon you that, man, it's time to respond in faith and trust in Jesus and accept his offer of free grace and forgiveness. And it's just like, man, let's just do it. See, the Apostle Paul was such a great example of this obedience. Like I mentioned earlier, he got thrown in prison because, primarily because he was preaching to the Gentiles. It's a group of people that got him thrown in prison because of that. And you know, if you step back and think about it, you could have made the argument, oh, preaching to the Gentiles is kind of impractical. It's going to land you in jail and eventually get your head cut off. If you don't do that, you don't preach to the Gentiles, your ministry is going to go on much longer. You would have a, a much longer ministry. You could plant more churches. You could share the gospel with more people. And, and you could make a rational argument that Paul shouldn't preach to the Gentiles. But he said, uh-uh, nope. God has called me to this. This is what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to obey and follow his leading. And we know how the story ended. It eventually got him thrown in prison, and he eventually was executed because of it. But he followed the Lord. He ran his race. He finished the race. He was obedient to what God called him to, the life and ministry that God had called him to. So what is God calling you to do? How is he calling you to obey him in this time? Only you can answer that. Only you can answer that. So, but I want you to hear me. Is our acceptance with God conditional on our performance or perfection of obedience? Absolutely not. Don't, don't hear this and say, oh, God's gonna, I can't be accepted. That's, that's totally wrong. No, we don't obey for acceptance. We are accepted, therefore we obey. This is the gospel, right? At great cost to Jesus, as accepted ones, as loved ones, as forgiven ones in Christ, through faith in Christ, 
we now are called to obey because Jesus says so. And I think Peter shows us what it means to be obedient and what it means to be obedient to what the Word of God says. So test your heart this week and do you think of Jesus and treat Jesus more as an advisor or as an authority in your life? Okay, so let's, um, oh, I'll just mention this real fast. So, man, we're complex beings, aren't we, humans? Like, you can be, you can have the Lord be authoritative in one area of your life, but then there's this other area of your life where he's not, right? Like, like you, he can be, a, you can be, have him as Lord in, like, your finances, but then in relationships, not at all. You're not, you're not obeying him at all in how you engage your wife and your kids and your coworkers and your friends. Like, like, so, so just because the Lord is uh, he's authoritative in one area of your life doesn't necessarily mean he'll be authoritative in another. So just ponder that. <laughs> Chew on that for this week. We want him to be an authority over our, our whole lives. Whole lives. Not an advisor, an authority. All right, back to... Back to Luke 5. So verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Many times it's uh, after our obedience that the blessing comes. You see that? Peter obeyed, and the blessing of the fish came. It's after the obedience that the blessing comes comes after it goes against conventional wisdom and and everything you think will make sense but you follow the blessing comes verse 7 they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink but when simon peter saw it he fell down at jesus's knees saying depart from me for i am a sinful man o lord For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And they were, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, Peter. And Jesus also said to Simon Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Now, this week I had one of those moments where I saw something in the Word that I hadn't ever really kind of seen before in my study. I love when that happens. And, and I realized as I began to study this particular miracle story, there's another one that kind of bookends. So this one's at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he does almost the exact same miracle right at the end of his earthly ministry in John chapter 21. And, and, and so we see... Peter follows Jesus, it's the beginning, and then John 21, we're at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, where Peter is really being sent by Jesus to start the New Testament church as we know it. And so um, it's, not, it's not the same incident, it's two different incidents that, that seem very similar. So I want to go to John 21 and, and read it and pull some things out from it. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to them, him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, the apostle John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I mean, just picture this. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off land, about a hundred yards. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. 
And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. I mean, look at the detail. I, lo- I love it. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, just sidebar, like, like it's one of the reasons I think Scripture, like, it's, it's just clear that it's, it's, it's um, accurate and what actually happened. Like, you don't make these kind of details up. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, there was 153 fish. I mean, it's just, uh, to me, it's affirming that Scripture is authentic. And this, these are the words that were written 2,000 years ago, um, preserved by God, but uh, amazing. Uh, all right, so 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Okay, so these two stories are strikingly similar. You see this? Strikingly similar. Both situations, they don't find anything the night before. Jesus gives them a command to toss the nets out, and they pull in this incredible catch of fish. And in both circumstances, both stories, Simon Peter has a very strong reaction, right? Very strong reaction. And in both cases, I think it has nothing to do with the fish. Peter never says, wow, look at all these fish. No, Peter knows that the point of this miracle is not about the fish, but instead to teach them about Jesus and reveal who Jesus is. Who is this man? So what's the difference between the two stories? It's striking as well. Peter responds in totally opposite ways. In the first, he responds with fear and awe and says, go away from me. Depart from me. I want nothing to do with you. I I have to get away because his eyes were open to the holiness of of Jesus in that moment. His eyes were open. And and this is, um, you know, I'm a sinful man. He becomes very aware of Jesus' holiness and his own sinfulness. I mean, really, like, if I wasn't on a boat, I would run away, right? Depart from me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. And this, this response is actually very common throughout the Scriptures. You see men encounter the presence of God, and what do they do? Their reaction? They fall flat on their face. Like, there's just this this um, terror mixed with awe, mixed with fear. And what does Jesus say? He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But Peter's reaction is, I'm sinful. I'm not worthy to be with you. I have to get away from you. I'm so sinful. I need to get away. I need to hide. Now, John 21, what does he do? He's like a crazy man right? Grabbing his cloak and leaping into the water, and he's doing everything he can, everything possible to get to Jesus. He's making a beeline to Jesus. He's doing everything he can to get near to Jesus, right? Totally different response. One, first, I have to get away. John 21, I have to get to Jesus. I have to get near Jesus. And we know the context. I think the context makes this even more potent, right? That Jesus had just resurrected, right? We know the story. Jesus had just resurrected. And at this point, we don't really know whether Peter had seen Jesus yet or not. He had revealed himself to some of the disciples, but Peter's name was never mentioned in those those appearances. But, But nonetheless, nonetheless, do you remember the story? What happened at the crucifixion? Peter, right before, Lord, I would die for you. And the Lord says, you're going to deny me three times. And he didn't believe it. He said, no way. And then the moment of testing comes, and he, he denies that he ever even knew Jesus. And Luke 22 tells us, after the third time he denied him, there was this moment where Jesus looked And the two of them made eye contact across the courtyard. Think about that scene. Peter makes eye contact with Jesus. He had just told, you know, a younger girl, I don't even even know him. I don't know him. And it says, after he made eye contact with Jesus, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He just went out and he weeps. And so now, where do we see Peter? He's back fishing. Back to his old life. I've blown it. There's no way the Lord will ever 
use me in that way again. I, the test came and I failed. I blew it. So I would say in this moment, Peter was more acutely aware of his sin in John 21 than he was in Luke 5, right? He was, he was more aware of his sinfulness. He was more aware of his failure. He had just blown it. And yet, what's his response? He runs to Jesus. Even, even with his failure, he runs to Jesus. Why? Why? Why would Peter say, I'm not running away, I'm running to him. I'm, I'm running to him because he's the only one who could ever forgive my sin. He had, he had spent three years now with Jesus. And I think he got to know him. He got to know what he was like. And he understood the gospel in ways that he couldn't understand in Luke 5. And he knew he needed forgiveness. And he knew the only place he would get it is with Jesus. He didn't run away. He ran to Jesus. His sin didn't drive him away. It drove him to. So when you understand that the depth of God's mercy and grace, this is our response. Even when we fall short, we run to him. So have you blown it? Have you done something wrong? Are you in a place where you feel like a big failure? Does your failure make you feel like you don't want to come to church, like you don't want to see Jesus, you don't want to pray, you could never approach him? Or does it have the opposite effect? Do you say, I have to be close to Jesus, even in my failure? Do you see Jesus only as a powerful, transcendent judge? Or do you see him as a powerful, transcendent judge who is infinitely merciful and grace-filled? How do you know him? I pray that you'll be Peter in John 21. That's, that's what we should be. I mean, Luke 5 is appropriate too. I mean, the part, I mean just a recognition of our sin and his authority and his power is appropriate. But I think, man, we should be John 21 Peters, jumping in the water, saying, Lord, you are the only one who could ever forgive my failures. And so I'm running to you. I'm running to you. And I just want to close with Isaiah 55. This is a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 55. It says something very interesting. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. What's strange about that passage? What is strange? Um, if I were to come here for lunch, uh, you know, right after church, and, and I, I said, hey, I'm here to buy. Yeah, I don't have any money. They'd be like, uh, there's the door, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Why, why on earth would God tell us to come and buy with no money? Because in God's economy, lack, nothingness, brokenness is currency. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to stop being so confident in our commitment to him, to Jesus, and start realizing how we can be confident in Jesus' commitment to us. Stop being so confident in your commitment to Jesus and start being confident in his commitment to you. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. He will always forgive you. His mercy knows no limits. No limits. So we see in the John 21 passage, the Lord restores Peter, right? It's shortly thereafter. There's this scene where he says, do you love me? Yes, I know. I love you, Lord. I love you tend my sheep, right? There's this kind of this restoring and commissioning of Peter. And not 60 days later, Peter would get up and boldly proclaim the gospel and 3,000 people would come to Jesus. He became a fisher of men. He became a fisher of men. And I just think um, 
It's amazing how God uses and redeems our failures, isn't it? I think Peter was a more effective minister of the gospel because he had failed, because the Lord then restored him. He, he, he got it. He got it. He knew he needed Jesus, and he ran to him. So my hope for us is that we'll realize, man, we get to follow this Jesus. We get to. He's all-powerful, authoritative, but he's merciful, and he loves you. And we obey him not because we have to, but because we get to. And that's where we find infinite joy in following Jesus. So, man, I would just challenge you guys, get to know him. Get to know him. You know, don't settle for the trailer. Right? Don't settle for the trailer. Like, let's, let's, let's dive in and know this Jesus and walk with him. And in so doing, I think we'll find the joy that he promises and experience that joy. I know you will. You will. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in our failures, God, we can run to you. Where we think there's no way God would forgive this. It's not true. It's a lie. His mercy is limitless. His forgiveness is limitless. So Lord, in this room right now, if there is someone who feels that they are too sinful, too dirty, too unclean to approach your throne, Lord, may we see Isaiah 55, come with no money and buy, come with nothing Lord, we bring our nothingness to you. We bring our lack and we come with open hands in surrender to you saying, you are Lord. You alone have the words of life. You alone can save us from our sin and forgive us, Lord. God, do a mighty work in all of our hearts. Give us the joy of our salvation this day, today, right now. Holy Spirit, infuse in us a passion, just seeing the scripture, seeing who you are and what you are like, that we can come to you in our failures in any state, and we can come and receive from you. So Lord, may we receive the love, the joy, and the peace that is offered through your perfect life, death, and resurrection. We need you. We love you. We worship you, Jesus. And we give you the glory due to your name as our Lord and Savior. We pray all this in your holy, righteous, just, precious, merciful name, Jesus. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.